beautifully, blessedly, we begin to see antibodies again. What Donald Trump is trying to do begin to develop. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent for the New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power, a contender for the longest title in American recent American book history. Also with us is Laura Jakes, deputy managing editor of FP News. Finally, we have FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. David Sanger, Donald Trump is the most dangerous voice in American politics since Joe McCarthy. Elucidate. Well, I think, David, that he is um, certainly the voice that is getting the most attention. But whether he is the most dangerous, I doubt. McCarthy was able to actually hold hearings that ruin the lives of many individuals. I think that what we've seen happen in the past few days is that the last Donald Trump outburst, which was his uh, suggestion that we bar all Muslim non-citizens from the country for some indeterminate period of time, has actually made the country sort of step back and say, is this really where we want to go? And I thought it was notable that among those who came out to say this isn't who we are was Dick Cheney. Okay, So when you've staked out a position politically that is somewhat to the right of Dick Cheney, you have to question your overall electability. Corey, this is crazy shit. Sanger sounds like a New York Times guy, and he's all like, like moderate and like, oh, yes, well, what, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. C- come on. I mean, you're to the right of Dick Cheney. How do you feel about this? <laughs> Corey, it's only because you're sitting on another coast that you have to take that. <laughs> it's actually not true. He says that kind of stuff right to my face. <laughs> I think David's right on several counts. Oh, that's easy since we're both named David. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think it should be obvious to listeners of this podcast that I am talking about Sanger, not Rothkopf. I didn't even need to footnote where I fell on this. Okay. Um, I, I think Donald Trump is reprehensible and dangerous, and he has a solid base of supporters that we need to worry about their attitudes. But I also think David is right that uh, there is not institutional support for this. Moreover, there's not even support from other candidates, other bases in the party. The third thing is that beautifully, blessedly, we begin to see antibodies against uh, what Donald Trump is trying to do begin to develop. Right? Like, we are actually having a national conversation about how crazy this is, how dangerous this is. The support for American Muslims who are not new immigrants, they've been part of our history forever. And terrific efforts like Ben Wittes's American Muslim Faces, like, all 
good things begin to happen to push back on this already. That's just not true. David, can I point out that Corey has sounded so moderate and uh, reasonable here that she could be a New York Times reporter? She could be a New York Times reporter. (laughs) Corey, if you were at least 40% duller, you could work for the New York Times as well. Um, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Laura... I, you know, I listen to this stuff, and it's but it you know it's all sounds you know very measured, and let's not worry about this. Trump started by going after the Mexicans. He said a whole bunch of horrible shit about the Mexicans. Everybody said this is going to blow up his campaign, and what happened? He got stronger. He then went and said some other horrible sh- stuff about other people, and it got stronger. He's now saying this horrible stuff, and it's getting stronger. Whether it's institutionalized or not, there seems to be a mob mentality in the U.S. among nativists and white supremacists and people who are just scared that is a little bit akin to some really bad chapters in history. So while these guys are you know, playing it down, isn't, the, isn't there some cause for this sinking sensation in the pit of my stomach? Well, certainly world leaders think so, right? Uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has uh, spoken out against Trump. While inviting him to Israel. Well, but now Trump is saying he's not going to Israel. He is uh, saying that he is not going to go to Jordan. We're not sure whether or not those plans were solid, but clearly there was some kind of effort for him to go to Amman, maybe to meet with King Abdullah. Maybe this would have been his big entree into, you know, the Muslim community. But he is saying, no, I'm not going. He's saying he's not even going to Israel now. I think it's important to point out, David, what you were saying. Um, You know, in the venerable New York Times this morning, there was a poll that showed that Trump has 35 percent support approval ratings. I didn't see that because that's where my fish was lying. (laughs) (laughs) When David Sanger talks about the fact that, you know, these are maybe horrible things or reprehensible things to say, but is he really ruining lives? I might say, yeah, because he is preventing people from coming to this country. He is preventing, you know, the hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees who are seeking better lives from coming here, from fulfilling the American dream, from even having a chance at that American dream. Let's all remember what this country was founded upon. I also kind of want to point out some new poll numbers that came out this week. Corey, I wonder maybe if you could talk about this. The Brookings Institution put out this poll that indicated that something like two-thirds of Democrats uh, support um, the Muslim community in the United States, feel like Islam is not a threat to U.S. values, while less than half of Republicans feel the opposite, feel that Muslim uh, values and Islam are uh, a threat to the United States. I I, uh, am a little surprised that this has been broken down into such um, partisan blocks, I guess, for lack of a better word, especially when you think about Islam has a very socially conservative message. Um, That's not a judgment. It's just that they are more – Muslims are generally more conservative than than non-Muslims. And so I'm just, I was very well, surprised it, it to also, see this. It also says if you have two-thirds of Democrats, that means one-thirds of Democrats are not there and have half Republicans and 25, and the parties are half and half. You take 25 plus 15, that's 40% of Americans are in this camp where they're either not willing to show support for Muslims or they're afraid of Muslims. That's scary. It's sad. Yes, I agree that's scary. There, I'm a big fan of the sociologist Robert Putnam's work. I default. You know, these academics, the last one of these things, Montesquieu, came up. 
This is highbrow. Maybe this is showing my age, but Robert Putnam was the professor who I had in my freshman year of college who tried all this stuff out early on us and has gone on to much higher heights than any of us here. So, you know. He's saying that. His freshman advisor was Montesquieu. (laughs) Putnam's work on diversity is actually really relevant both to bigotry and to terrorism because is research shows that diversity not only causes less sense of sameness across groups, but also within them, right? So in a society as diverse as ours, we actually always have to work at tolerance. It's not a simple function of being thrown together. Moreover, groups don't uh, pull together into cohesive wholes. Um, they they lose their hold internally as well as it being unsettling. So what this means is, yeah, you actually have to work at diversity. And the more diverse your society is, the more you actually have to be conscious that groups, Muslims in America, for example, aren't cohering into a tighter and tighter hold, uh, that they are, you know, becoming more like the rest of society, and that's profoundly disorienting for people. You have a globalization challenge. You also have the, the mainstreaming challenge. And for some in every group, whether that is disaffected white men who aren't adapting to globalization well, or whether it is young Muslim women who are becoming more and more engaged in American society, there are others in those groups that that's threatening to. And we actually have to deal with that. And I don't think the political leadership discussions of it are particularly helpful. And it's not just Donald Trump. Yes, you have to work at diversity, but you can't do that when diversity is being shut down, right? If we, if the United States is blocking Muslims from, foreign Muslims from entering the United States, then that is a, a shutdown of, of opening up voices and perspectives. Well, let me, let me take it a step back and pull it out, David. Let's put it in a more geopolitical scale. On a more geopolitical basis, right now, the most powerful and richest countries in the world, the countries of the Atlantic Treaty Organization, the U.S. and the Europeans, are both faced with a crisis around the other, the other being immigrants, whether they're refugees from the Middle East or immigrants from Mexico or immigrants from North Africa, these countries are now challenged by this in a way that is actually affecting politics in a fundamental way. And so in Europe, the influx of of refugees has led to a strengthening for the National Front in France and the Northern Alliance in Italy and groups in Hungary and Austria and otherwise. And then in opposition to Angela Merkel in Germany. Right. And this weakens the EU. Clearly what we're talking about in the U.S. weakens the U.S. So we can talk about this in human terms, and it's appalling in human terms. And frankly, I'm disgusted that more leaders have not come out in the United States and said, what makes us great in the U.S. is diversity, and I'm going to celebrate it and embrace it, and I'm going to offer a counter message because we can't tolerate this an hour longer. But the same problem exists in Europe right now. And this global upheaval actually is a threat both to the moral authority and to the cohesiveness of the Atlantic Alliance. So you're seeing this migrant wave threatening the identities of many European countries. 
you're certainly seeing this debate that we've described with all of its most disturbing elements going on uh, in the United States. And these are entirely predictable because when you have open liberal societies and when you have a country like the United States that was based entirely on immigration, you know, not a single person who's involved in this argument didn't have a relative someplace who was an immigrant to the United States. You are constantly going to go through these cycles. And a professor who Corey didn't cite out here, but who has sort of been lurking in uh, in the background posthumously from this, is Sam Huntington with the crisis, uh, clash of civilizations. I actually don't think we're headed to a clash of civilizations, but I think elements of what he described out there you are seeing in this immigration debate. And it's not the first time. He founded foreign policy. I just had to throw that in there. David keeps a, a photograph of him up on his office wall to celebrate the Clash of Civilizations yeah, but, concept. But, no, but, actually, he founded it long before he came up with Clash of Civilizations. Right. And, but, and by the way, he wrote an article for foreign policy after he wrote about the Clash of Civilizations in which he said that the influx of Latins into the United States was a threat to the cohesiveness of U.S. culture. And if you go back over history, the influx of Chinese coming in to work on the railroad was a threat to U.S. culture. The influx of Jews, Jews, German Jews, and then Russian Jews was a threat to U.S. culture. I mean, this is because we live in a profoundly ahistorical society. Um, we forget this is well, hardly so Jake's relatives. Uh, <laughs> 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 because because we forget this is this is hardly new, and that's to some degree the optimistic look at this, that this is why people believe that Donald Trump and what he's saying is going to flame out. But the pessimistic, but before, the pessimistic view of it is that the reason that, you know, I'm here is that we went through this before in Europe. That's right. And, and my family had to leave in a hurry, and most of them weren't lucky enough to get out. There my family some, left in the previous run in Europe from that same part. And there are some <laughs> real echoes between the Trump message and the response to the Trump message and how Hitler came to power and how Mussolini came to power. And, you know, we don't say those words because they're very, very charged. But this is the same phenomenon. It, it, is, it at least has echoes of it. This episode of the Editor's Roundtable is brought to you by Brand South Africa. Register now for a new digital newsletter that provides fresh perspectives on the Rainbow Nation. We're curating unique stories on politics, business, culture, and more to connect you with the issues and people that matter in South Africa and the U.S. Sign up at brandsouthafrica.com. I just wanted to go back to the poll that Lara uh, referred to, which was a New York Times CBS morning uh, CBS News poll that came out this morning after your newspaper was already wrapped in the fish. So, so to read it, you're going to have to get the fish oil off of your iPhone, David. But here was the paragraph that jumped out at me. So Trump comes in at around 35 percent, and you know, plus or minus four or five percent. That's basically where he's been consistently through the summer, which tells you that not only is there may be a floor to this. There may be a ceiling to this, okay? But the second thing which I found, which really jumped out at me in the poll, let me read you the paragraph from our summary of this. Um, While Republican voters were most likely to say they were excited, 24%, or optimistic, 41%, a full one-third of Republicans say they are still concerned or scared about Mr. Trump. So think of that. One-third of the Republican electorate might be scared of Trump and think about that in terms of a general. So I was thinking, okay, that tells you sort of where the party is. Then you get to the next sentence. 
Mrs. Clinton's base views her potential presidency more favorably than Mr. Trump's. 22 percent of Democratic voters are excited and 54 percent are optimistic. But the difficulty out here is that you also discover as you dig in that 23 percent said they are concerned and 34 percent said they're scared about the possibility of a Clinton presidency. So you add those two together. It's about the same of the general population that's scared about a Trump presidency. And the question is, how can this be be true? How can both of these statements be be correct? That you've got about equal parts of the population Is it the population about the or the parties? Though this that part of it seemed to have been asked of of all all uh, of the respondents. You know, I just wonder if fear is a turnout, if if that will motivate people to come out as opposed to being excited about a candidate. Oh, look, look, let's 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 cut to the quick political analysis. You know, Sanger's always on these shows and they like, you know, predict the future and then immediately burn the tapes because, you know, (laughs) but um, (laughs) but but if Donald Trump is as strong in March as he is today and probably anyway, Hillary Clinton Really, her biggest decision is what color the drapes are going to be in the Oval Office, because if he runs as a third party candidate, the Republicans are are dead. Right. Right. And if he is the Republican candidate, the elections are over. And if somebody else is the Republican candidate, they can't afford to alienate Trump and they're going to have to capitulate in some way to him. And the election is over. So as of right now, barring some giant upset, Hillary Clinton looks pretty comfortable. Which takes you back to Corey's first point about institutions, which is, in the end, if you believe that analysis, and I'm actually caught here in brief agreement with Rothkoff, although we'll burn this tape to at least that part of it. By the way, David, the tape was just a term of art. This There's, is the 21st century. <laughs> okay. <laughs> kind of like that newspaper, huh? That newspaper. The newspaper in the face, uh, yeah, right? <laughs> If you believe David's analysis on this, then you're not going to get the institutional change. And while Lara is right that I think a lot of Muslims and others are concerned about entering the United States, it's never been all that easy for them or for anybody to come into the U.S. in recent times. And the law has not changed in the interim of this debate. Now, the atmosphere certainly has, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are concerned about coming into the country who might have been thinking about it pretty enthusiastically a number of months ago. But there's nothing in our admissions qualifications, there's nothing in the background investigations that have changed. I suspect after San Bernardino, something will change, that it's going to get a lot harder to get a, a, uh, an H-1 visa having married somebody who's already a U.S. citizen and still go through sort of a lower level of check. No, you're absolutely right. It, it is very hard for people, for immigrants to get visas to come into the United States. I suspect that, yes, there will it will be even harder in the future. But I think what the point of the Trump debate is that he is talking about screening people based on their religion. What other country in the world does that? who bars people based on religion. I would say probably almost no other country. Iran doesn't do that. Israel doesn't do that. Um, I mean, in my it reporting, frankly, I haven't found that, I, but I that should say, be should, alarming. It should be disqualifying. The fact that the Republican Party and its leadership have not stood up and said, we repudiate this, we repudiate this man. We repudiate this violation of our principles. Suggest just how debased the political process has become in the United States of America. Corey, 
every other political candidate, every other candidate except Ted Cruz running for the Republican nomination. And as we know, there are 485 Republicans contending for the nomination. All of them have repudiated. Okay, well, first of all, when you say except Ted Cruz, he's one of the leading candidates at the moment. And secondly, the leadership of the Republican Party, uh, specifically the chairman of the party and so forth, have not. Yes, I agree they should do that. And yes, I agree Ted Cruz has support. Although, explain that. He's shamelessly looking to But Ted Cruz, please explain this to me, Corey. Explain it. Ted Cruz is the kind of guy whose head you would have dunked in the toilet in high school because he is such an irritating creep. We, I mean, or I mean, you would have. I wouldn't have done that, but you might have done that. David lost the moderation contest today. You're but, right. But here's one quick statistic for you, Corey. So on that same poll, Trump got 35 percent. Cruz came in second at 16 percent. Actually, the first time that he's come out ahead so, of Carson. So the Trump that. plus Cruz, Cruz is 51 percent. So that sounds like a modest majority. This is your opportunity to renounce your party, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> As you guys know, I single-handedly hold down the left wing of the Republican Party, so I'm not an ideal person to explain the Trump and Cruz phenomenon. But I do think there are a couple of things that are relevant here. Um, One is that, as I've said on this podcast before, this feels like the 1890s to me. People are dealing with an enormous amount When you were of in high school. That's when you yeah. were... When David was already <laughs> taking over from Sam Huntington here. <laughs> that people are scared. Politicians are failing the task of, of explaining what's happening, encouraging people to face change bravely. That, yes, this kind of craziness happens when you lack political leadership. And I think that's occurring. It's certainly occurring in the Republican Party. I think it's occurring more broadly in the country. And that's what it's going to take for this to settle down. But we're not close to that at the moment, as the Trump phenomenon shows. But the second point is that um, nobody's cast a ballot yet. We are still in the point where there is no penalty for people saying, well, this guy's great. He's not politically correct. He's saying what I think. Um, And I have an enormous amount of confidence in the good judgment of the American people when they actually go into a polling place to say, wow, do I actually want to elect someone president that will be renounced by all of our allies in the world? Like the British... 400,000 British people have signed a petition to ban Donald Trump from from being admitted. Well, to we reelected George Bush in in if to a second term at a moment when he would have been renounced by every ally in the world. I'm not taking that thing. <laughs> Corey, remind us when did you leave the Bush administration? <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> May I offer a data point here that gives us a little bit of perspective? You know how we like to avoid facts during these well, conversations. I know. Sanger reading school marmishly from his iPhone about the polling data is the exception to that. But go ahead. <laughs> the image of you wrapping your fish in the iPhone is... I was just going to note that as we talk about this, uh, the migrant influx hitting Europe and all of these right-wing parties are rising in response to it, there is another narrative out out there that doesn't get a lot of attention, and that's that many of these countries 
you know, Germany, Spain, Italy also have very low birth rates. And so there are some leaders in those countries who are welcoming the migrants and who say this may be the answer to future generations and trying to keep a, a middle class in our country. And um, there is an upside to some of these things. And, you know, and, and by the way, it's been an upside for the U.S. The reality is that of all the big developed economies, the United States has stayed, relatively speaking, on a demographic basis, younger than the others, in part because of our embrace of immigration. Right. And that our innovation, particularly out where Corey lives in Silicon Valley, has been built in large part on very recent immigrants. Right. And that's part of our strength. But I have to say, if I were part of the Asian American community right now, I'd be really uncomfortable because I am seeing what's happened with the Latin community. I'm seeing what's happening with the Muslim community. I'm seeing a lot of resentment. I'm seeing a society in which inequality has um, uh, grown by many measures where uh, wage rates for the middle class and the bottom part of the population have not grown over the course of 45 years. There's a lot of reason for anger in these communities. And you don't have to win the election to have the fact that 30, 40, 50 percent of the American electorate um, feel this kind of rage to be a real problem for people navigating day-to-day -day life in that society. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I was just thinking about, again, if you go back to voter turnout and how one community or another may try to shoot this these these feelings down is by coming out and voting and and voting against people who seem xenophobic. But then you look at the fact that I think there are only something like two million Muslim Americans in the United States, and it does dispel any hope for that particular community to try to defeat some of these political ideals. I, it's true. Is anybody in Europe doing a particularly good job at countering this message? I mean, Time Magazine picked Angela Merkel as their person of the year, thus baffling 90% of the American, American readership who have no friggin' idea who Angela Merkel is. Well, that's scary. That, that may that, be more that, scary that, than that, anything that, else we've talked about that, today. That could well be. So Merkel's a fascinating uh, player in all of this because she was the one who pushed beyond where many in her own party would have taken to take in the Syrian refugees. She's the one who has made the case that Lara just laid out that Germany needs the the uh, economic boost that comes from having them come in, just looking at their own population rates. She's taken some heat for it. Uh, and over time, my suspicion is that this will probably erode a fair bit of her base. She seems willing to go do that. But she's not a natural communicator. This is something that she shares with uh, – President Obama. And as a result, you know, she's done probably a, a, a less good job than Obama has in making the this is we have to be true to our values sort of argument. She doesn't do that communication terribly well. Part of the reason is because she squishes a little bit. She did shut down borders in September. She did stop trains of migrants from coming in. And then she realized, oh, uh, Actually, no, we need to take the moral high ground on some of this. That's and so right. she, she squished. There's, there's a lot of, of countervailing pressure inside the German government you know, on this issue. And she sees the rise of more nativist parties, not only uh, you know, less so in Germany, obviously, than in, in France. And we're, when we are uh, recording this a couple of days before a French election. But isn't the outcome there going to be disturbing to us? I'm sure it will. I mean, I can't imagine that Le Pen's party is not going to 
do quite well in that election. I'm not certain that she's got the ability at this point to put together a majority uh, in, a, in a future election. She's hoping to build on this one. It's more than 8,000 miles from Washington to Johannesburg. South Africa Now gets you there without the jet lag. It's a new digital newsletter curating the best information about South African politics, culture, business, and more. Get your copy at brandsouthafrica.com. Lara is here on a break from her tough duty living in Rome for most of this year. Um, amidst all of this, what's the mood in Italy about this kind of stuff? About uh, the migrants or and about... the whole rise of the right and the resentment of the migrants and well, Renzi's party is um, very socialist. It's very much like Hollande's party in in France. And earlier this summer, there was a lot of resentment against what they call the vous compre in Italy. These are the migrants, mostly from North Africa, who come and they sell you the water for two dollars a bottle. They tr- they're the squeegee guys of New York, basically. Um, that has died down in the last six months. And a large reason for that is because many of the migrants who have come through Lampedusa and come through some of the parts in Italy have moved on. Um, having said that, many in Renzi's government are, like I said, are trying to keep some of the migrants in so they can you know, try to solidify this, this middle class with new uh, citizens. Um, they are paying some of the migrants to stay. They have let them enter the labor workforce. Um, but it, it is a work in, in progress. Um, and certainly there is an argument about let's just push these guys through and make them less of our, our problem. Um, I did want to say one thing about Hollande, um, just to kind of uh, piggyback on something you said, Rothkopf. Um, not to be totally cynical what i'm doing the saying or wrong i'm a journo you know yeah, we no, talk to each other in last names what no i get it okay jakes exactly not to be totally cynical but you know Hollande, socialist um has been more progressive than obviously le pen's party but um you know he also has imposed a state of emergency in the wake of the paris attacks this is a massive crackdown on most free speech on uh, public discourse, uh, allowing people to... You don't need a warrant for almost anything. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it struck me, I think it's Le Pen's niece who is running for one of these seats in southeast France in the upcoming elections. And she said recently if she's elected, then she will stop um, having schools serve halal meals in her region, which I just thought was... She's good, but i got to tell you something. She is one of the most compelling political figures I've seen in a long time. Why is that? She's articulate. She's attractive. She knows how to play the media in an extremely good way. She is really friggin' scary because, you know, if the political devil were to appear among you, he would not have horns. You know, he would be, you know, this attractive 25-year-old who's incredibly telegenic and makes you think... You want to believe what she's saying, and that's exactly where she is. It's like the justice minister in Israel, right? Yeah, and she's also a scary character. Um, but there's a lot of this going on. You know, I think, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it, it takes it takes different forms in different countries. 
Um, but, you know, Russia's involvement in Syria is not based on its warm embrace of Islamic influx into its near abroad or its underbelly. And China is extremely uncomfortable with the Islamic influx into the Uyghur regions of China. And, of course, India has suffered with this for some time. And, you know, Africa and tribalism remains, uh, you know, a giant problem. Uh, and you and and you see it dividing up and tearing at countries uh, like uh, Nigeria even today. Now, you know, is it something new that there's ethnic tensions in the world? Of of course it's not. The problem is that ethnic tensions are a little bit like uh, you know body functions, and every once in a while the they they rise to a level where. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, become pathological and where they really they, – they, be, they become a risk to the body politic. They do, David, which is why we want to make sure that as we keep our conversation on this going as a, as a nation and you want to make sure in Europe and, and elsewhere that we remember that what's going on here is a civil war within Muslim societies and that if you – come out with proposals like the one that, that Donald Trump did to ban all Muslims, you are from entering the country, even if you say that you're only doing it for a short period of time. What you're doing is taking away the advantage that the United States and its allies have in promoting one side of that civil war, the tolerance side, which still remains within the Muslim community a lot larger numerically than what you're seeing in the jihadist side. And so why you don't have candidates out talking about the Indonesia example is, to my mind, a little bit confounding, other than the fact that it's subtle. We had a very good piece in uh, FP by the Emirati ambassador, Yusuf Al-Taiba, about what's going on in the Emirates. And that the story isn't the story everybody thinks, and they just elected a woman as the speaker of their parliament, and that there are changes afoot there. And he doesn't, you know, he's not a guy who'll go and argue everything's perfect there. But there is another message. And I think one of the big problems that remain here is that the moderate side of, of, of the Muslim world and Islamic leaders from that part have not gotten their narrative out there. They haven't been as committed to campaigning on this issue. Uh, and changing public views as I think they need to well, be. Well, here you're being the one who's being too moderate because let's face it, in the Syrian civil war issues, you have not had uh, the UAE, the other Arab states, and particularly the Saudis step up either militarily or vocally as much as you would want them to do so. And so when you ask the the moderate Arab states, so Tell me why well, I, is it that you're I, not sending you're not sending in more special forces? And I was just with Kerry in the UAE, and they're in that discussion and, and well, so forth. They've been the most forward leaning of these things. They led missions in. They actually had a woman lead a mission in. And what the, they were doing in terms of bombing is no different from what the British have just pledged to do. That's right. The difference is that the UAE and the Saudis started in on the bombing and then disappeared. It's, they might have something else that's taking their attention, right, i.e. Yemen. Yemen. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. But then they've got to get out and be as forth forthright in denouncing what happened in Paris 
denouncing what has happened uh, here. Well, some of them have been. I, you know, I, 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 I think, but, but I don't think it's not just denouncing. Not from the Saudis very much. No, the Saudis have not because they're going through their own particular issues. Although Tom Friedman went over there and he met with Mohammed bin Salman and there was a little bit of uh, romance in the air, I could tell, in the way that, you know, that, that sort of came out. But the reality is you have to go beyond denouncing these things. That's right. If I were in these groups, I'd be forming an institute. I'd be forming social networks. I'd be out there campaigning. I'd be calling up President Obama and saying, you need to help us support and get this message out there. Because this is a billion people. This is as big a cadre of the world population as exists, you know, in terms of self-defined interests. And there is no future... Uh, you know, peace or prosperity for the world that doesn't involve uh, appreciation for the great dimensions of Islamic society and an embrace of it and a reaffirmation of tolerance. And and we're just not there yet. It strikes me that the, the largest Muslim population per country in the world is Indonesia, right? That's right. Uh, it is not in the Mideast. Most people don't realize that. And so— And it's the one that's been the most successful at this experiment. And, and if you went back in the Republican debates, or even actually in the Democratic ones, but particularly in the Republican discussion of this issue, and you counted up the mentions of Indonesia, it wouldn't take you very much time. And yet you don't see, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't see Indonesian leaders, you don't see Philippine leaders, you don't see some of the Muslim leaders in Southeast Asia responding in the same way that we're asking Muslim leaders in the Mideast well, to respond. I think, and, and I think it needs to be a broader thing. Folks, we've come to the end of the time that we have allotted for this podcast. Uh, we have these carefully timed to coincide with the average workout duration of our nerd listeners. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to that guy who tweeted us the other day. I was just kind of wondering if it was an arms day or a legs day for him. Because he said he was listening during his workout? Yes. Yeah. Well, in our listenership out there, I'm pretty sure that the most vigorous workout is turning the pages of the New York Times very <laughs> rapidly while sipping on well, a latte. You know, it's it like be building up your thumb The difference strength. is that Corey actually does this podcast while she is in the midst of the exercise. <laughs> Corey, Corey is calling from the Hoover Institution hot tub where she sits <laughs> and, 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 and contemplates the future. Uh, I thank you, Corey. I thank you, Laura. I thank you, David. And folks, I uh, look forward to having... You join us again in the very near future for the next of our Editor's Roundtable podcasts. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.